<laughs> Just real quick, uh, last year I couldn't come because uh, the day uh, Pastor Lonnie asked me to come, we had Samuel. So he asked me to come, and I looked over to Katie. I said, what do you think? She goes, no. <laughs> so that's to all the young guys, listen to your your wives because <laughs> they, they have a, you know, they're like a second Holy Ghost, so. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a blessing to be here, and uh, we're, we're in the ride with you guys, so we're going to be blessed. Let's pursue the Lord. Amen. Amen. And what's so wonderful is he went to Chicago, and I'm sure he'll have the opportunity to tell all about that, but he wasn't supposed to be here until Saturday, and he just texted and said, hey, can we come up early? Absolutely. How long have you been married, Seth? Three years. Steve, can you imagine he's already kind of getting Psalms 31? Yeah. Wisdom by his side? Yeah. Wow, it took me a lot longer than that. And he listens to his wife. Three years, he listens to his wife. That's awesome. Could you put your hands together and just love on Steve? Amen. Come on, come on. Come on, Steve. Tell me when you want me to hand out. Nope. Woo! We're hot. I'm actually. You know, I just want to thank all of you for your ministry to me, um, both last night, today, and tonight. It's just so pleasant to be here. It's relaxing. It's like being on vacation, so just peaceful. I enjoy that. I know the rain is helping. I know. I heard someone say, I'm so tired of the rain. I wish it was done. I'm going, those of us from California are going, are you kidding me? <laughs> Keep it coming. Uh, last night when I was brushing my teeth, I actually was turning the water on and off because I was thinking of conserving water until I, wait, I'm in Vermont. <laughs> I could just let this run. Um, sometimes people ask me how long it takes for me to prepare a message. And I say, well, let's see, I'm 57 years old. I guess 57 years. Uh, It is, because I I don't prepare messages like I think a lot of people do and, and many people need to do with a lot of study in the week and hours and pouring over stuff. I mean, I, I preach out of what God has taught me through my life, and I, I don't preach something new. I just preach what I know. I, I'm just sharing with you what I know, what God has shown me, and what He's taught me in my life. And I often like preaching in the spirit to surfing. I know there's probably not a lot of surfers in Vermont. You? There's some old surfers, you know? Well, one of the first lessons you learn about surfing is surfers don't make the waves, and you don't control the waves. You just learn to watch for when it comes in and get on it. And then you ride it till it's over with or till you get too close to the rocks. Either way, you stop. And I felt last night was a good... I felt like I was surfing. It wasn't me. That was the wave. That was God doing that. So let's pray again that the wave comes in. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for your persistent pursuit of us as our... Our loving dad <clears throat> as a um as our teacher who guides us and instructs us. We're not here to hear from Steve Deal. Pray that you just hide him. But we do need to hear from you. You are the author and creator creator of forgiveness. 
We're not going to find it from the world. We're not going to invent it ourselves. It's something of you. It's a gift that comes from you through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord and Savior. So, Lord, help us to unwrap that gift more completely tonight. I know we've all unwrapped it in part, but everyone, including me, Lord, I'm listening. Help me to unwrap it more clearly tonight for even myself. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. If you were not here last night and um, missed out, I did hand out a worksheet that I would like you to have. So if you would raise your hand, Brandon's going to come around and pass these out. Or if you'd like a, a second one. Some of you I heard say, hey, I wanted to give one to my spouse so he or she could fill it out for me. If you did the worksheets last night or today, you saw that if you really want to know what your coping mechanism is, what your substitutes for forgiveness are, you can do it yourself, but some of you even said to me tonight, how do I know my coping mechanism isn't getting in the way of my discovering my coping mechanism? And it is. So, you know, there, there's, a, there's a way. Your coping mechanism does not want to be exposed. If you really want to think, your coping mechanism is almost like a demon who's working uh, underground. As long as you don't know it's there, it can keep getting away with stuff. But once exposed... It's in trouble. So your, your uh, substitute for real forgiveness is working against you all the time. It will stop you from practicing forgiveness. It'll, it'll even stop you from learning about forgiveness. So that's why you really got to expose it. So again, you, you do this for yourself. And you, don't, you don't have to share it with anyone else. But you might, if you, especially if you're having trouble, ask one or two people who know you well to fill one out for you and then look and see how they're reading you because your coping mechanism again has become a part of your personality you'd be surprised at how people are known by certain character traits which are really not godly we'd say they're fleshly but yeah and they are fleshly but what they are is simply expressions of one or more of these substitutes for forgiveness I'm justifying sin, I'm excusing sin, I'm denying sin, I'm ignoring sin, I'm misidentifying it, I'm blaming the wrong person, I'm running away, I'm hiding. You know, remember I said about my mother last night, who wasn't even a Christian, when I left Texas, she was really terribly afraid that I was going to move back to California, and I was so, my coping mechanism was so to, to compensate for other people's problems and sins that I would just back away from everyone. And I was so fiercely independent. She was sure I was going to become a homeless backpacking, a hermit living under the bridges in the mountains of California. And she was wrong. I would have never lived under any bridges. But I would have done all the other things because bridges were too close to where the people were. I don't even want to hear their cars. So I, I just learned to, my main coping mechanism is compensating. So when I find that I've sinned against God, then I just try harder next time to never do that again. Now you might say, what's wrong with that? Shouldn't we try not to sin? Absolutely, but not with that mentality. Not with the mentality of I'm a bad person, I'm not good enough, and I have to succeed, and I have to do it, and I have to prove to God that I can, that I can do this on my own. That's not Christianity. That's not healthy emotional living. That was, I don't want God to be angry at me, so I'm going to work real hard so he's not angry at me. 
In the same way, when other people would sin against me, compensating meant if you're going to fail me, I'm going to find a way to compensate and change my lifestyle and the way I think so that, I, so that you can't fail me. Now, that doesn't mean you stop failing. It means I don't need you. I need to find a way to live where I don't need you. So if I have to have a car and cars break down and you're an auto mechanic, that means you have the opportunity to hurt me because I have to be dependent on you. But if I learn to fix my own cars, I don't need you. And if I have a house, and it's going to have problems, electrical problems, someone has to fix a window or something, and you fix houses, I can protect my, myself from you by learning to fix my own house. So I became a do-it-yourselfer. I fix almost everything at my house and, and, and on my cars. And I'm, uh, like I said, a survivalist. Becky says if we're in a natural disaster, the big earthquake is going to come to California. It will happen someday. This happened before. Becky just says, well, Steve's my survival buddy because Steve ain't going down. He's not dying. He knows how to start fires without matches. He knows how to get purified water. He'll know how to get shelter. He'll know how to keep us alive. You know, and that kind of, in this culture, it makes me look really good. But like I said last night, it made me a rather poor husband and a rather poor father. I was just too fiercely independent. Matter of fact, I was known in my church as being a pastor who had publicly said, get this, I don't like people. Can you imagine that? A pastor being known for publicly saying, I don't really like people. I like preaching the word. I love Jesus. I'm going to do ministry, but really, if you guys could just all leave me alone and go away, that would be my pair. I mean, now I'm not that person anymore because that was my coping mechanism. And when I'm not paying attention to forgiveness, I can fall back into that. But now, I remember Becky even was shocked because Becky lived with this. She saw this. She felt this. She suffered with this just as I did with her coping mechanisms. And... Um, I remember I was, we went to a concert in our town park. There were about 3,000 people there. And normally I'd be complaining about the crampness and the noise and all these people. And, you know, just, they're just in my way. And I looked around and I felt something so different. And I said to my wife, I said, you know, look at all these people I could have loving relationships with. Wow. Wouldn't that be great? And Pecky kind of said, well, okay, who are you and what did you do with my husband? because you haven't talked that way ever since I've known you. See, that's life transformation. That happens as we learn the word yes, but we also have to be healed. We have to practice forgiveness. We have to learn how to fully receive God's forgiveness. We have to learn how to effectively forgive other people. We have to learn how to sincerely go to other people and ask them to forgive us. Forgiveness also includes learning how to overcome self-condemnation. Now, I'm not going to have a whole lot of time to talk about this, but I do need to say this quickly tonight. In the Bible, I don't find anything that we would call self-forgiveness. The world has invented the idea of self-forgiveness, and the church has sucked it up. It doesn't exist. Self-condemnation is in the Bible. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, was a self-condemned man, and he went out and hung himself. There's self-condemnation all over the Bible. But the world, because they don't know Jesus and don't know the cross, assume the solution to self-condemnation 
is this thing they call self-forgiveness. And you hear Christians saying, I hear it all the time, well, you've got to learn to forgive yourself before you forgive someone else. No. Because self-condemnation is a result or a symptom or a consequence of not fully receiving God's forgiveness and not forgiving the people who sin against you and not asking the people you sin against to forgive you. If you practice those three paths of forgiveness, you know what happens to self-condemnation? It just goes away. Sometimes I'm in big rooms with two, three, four hundred Christians, and I ask, how many of you, I won't ask you, I don't want to embarrass anyone, how many of you have been practicing self-forgiveness? And maybe half of the people will raise their hand. And then I'll say, now keep your hands up if you've been practicing self-forgiveness for more than ten years. And almost every hand stays up. They go, isn't that interesting? Is it working? No. It doesn't work. It's a dead-end street. It's a red herring. It's a, it's a way to sidetrack you from the real paths of forgiveness. Receiving God's forgiveness, forgiving other people, asking other people to forgive you. That's what heals the human soul. That's what sets you free, even from self-condemnation. And there's another part of forgiveness, and I heard someone mention it today. What about forgiving the person who's responsible for all this? And I thought, well, that person's thinking of one or two people in the way I've heard people say that. It's either Adam or it's God. Why did God let this happen? Why did God put the tree in the garden? Why did God this? Why does he let the earthquakes happen? Why does this? This would have been different if God would have just answered my prayer when I cried out, God is at fault. God this. God that. God is the bad guy. He is the problem. Can I suggest to you, you will never draw near to any person who you believe to be the source of your pain. Really not possible. If you believe, if I believe that Tilly is the source of my pain and she's going to do it again, then I'm going to put up some kind of distance, between a barrier and put some distance between us because I don't like pain. So I'll get close enough, you know, where it gets a little risky, but I'm still going to get some safe distance. When people believe that God is responsible for their pain, which is why when we were talking the other night, why you don't like the word allow, why did God allow my child to die? And you rightly said, I don't like that way of thinking and talking, and it's hard to put a, a pinpoint why we don't like that. It's because we start blaming God for our pain. Why did God let this terrible thing? He took my child. He took my spouse. He let this, he let this happen. He let that happen. Yes, there is such a thing as the permissive will of God, but we're not understanding that in a healthy way because in the end, Satan twists everything and we end up blaming God for the negative consequences of people's sins. Because the Bible says simply, all the pain in this world happens because of one thing and one thing only. It's something God calls sin. And sin can only do three things, and what are they? Steal, kill, and destroy. That's why there's suffering in this world. But Satan gets us to blame God. And when you blame God for your pain, guess who you're angry at? God. And guess who you have to distance yourself from? Well, I don't want to go to hell, so I need to get kind of close to God. 
but how close can I get to God? I guess I'll go to church on Sunday. I'll sing songs, but I can't really surrender my whole heart and life to him because if I do, look what he did before. So I'll, I'll play the game. I'll sing the songs. I'll look close, but well, come on. I've got to have some distance here. And you can be getting close to God and still setting up a barrier between you and God in church on Sunday mornings with other Christians. You've got to come to learn what the Bible teaches, that your pain is because of sin. And God hates sin because it is so destructive and so painful. He loves you and hates the things that destroy you. Amen? And if you can really accept that and believe that, then guess what happens to your anger towards God? It disappears. It's like self-condemnation. So the three paths of forgiveness that really need our attention are learning how to fully receive God's forgiveness, effectively forgiving other people so our anger is gone and replaced by God's love, and being able to sincerely go to the people we sin against and ask them to forgive us. Now, they may say no. They may say hell no. They may say hell no, not in a billion years. But if you learn to ask them to forgive you, God will still heal you. They will stay broken, but God will heal you. And you get healthier and healthier and better and better and more like Jesus, and your life becomes transformed into his image. And that's what we're all after, right? So tomorrow night, I'm going to show you more about how to do that. Tonight, we need to work more on what is forgiveness and why is it the way it is. Because forgiveness, listen to this, forgiveness is God's solution to a problem he calls sin. Now, I'm not giving you anything that says that. So, Ignacio, you want to write that down because I know you've been writing these things down. Forgiveness is God's solution. It's not man's solution. It's God's solution, and it's a solution to a problem, and it's a problem that God says it's sin. This thing that God calls sin is the problem. You're not the problem. Sin is the problem. Can I say that again? You're not the problem. You've been infected with the problem. The problem is something called sin. And forgiveness is God's solution to the problem through sin. And real forgiveness only happens in, through, and because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means outside of the church of, the, of Jesus Christ, outside of the gospel, real forgiveness doesn't exist. So the world has no solution to the problem of sin. And God is letting the world run its history to try everything it can think of to deliver itself from sin. The technology, the politics, the economic prosperity, the sciences, medical science, everything, everything we can think of, God is saying, well, go ahead and try that, go ahead and try that, go ahead and try that. And in the end, it's all going to be proven, boy, it doesn't work. Nothing works except Jesus Christ. Because he is the only one who makes forgiveness possible. And we need to know what it is. Every Christian needs to become one of the world's leading experts in forgiveness. Because if Christians aren't, who else is? The Muslims? The Buddhists? The Hindus? The atheists? The politicians? Hollywood? No, there won't be. There's no answer. 
Forgiveness is God's solution to this problem he calls sin. And last night, uh, we talked about how he, through forgiveness, through our practice of forgiveness, God heals the human soul and restores broken relationships. Now, if forgiveness is that good, that powerful, and that available to every Christian, why are we still having such a hard time practicing it? In fact, sometimes people ask me, Steve, why do you have to do a 10-hour seminar on forgiveness to Christians who ought to already know it? And then they'll say, they'll make this assumption, why did God make forgiveness so hard? And I'll say, it's not hard at all. Matter of fact, I could probably teach your children faster than I can teach you. The problem is, is we've all been mistaught in varying degrees, not all in the same way. But see, Satan does not, Satan does not want God's people practicing forgiveness. Because Satan knows better than we, better than me. Satan knows that if all God's people start practicing forgiveness, fully receiving it, forgiving others, and asking it, his kingdom is going down the tubes real fast. His power and hold over this earth will just erode away like sand on a beach. He cannot let that happen. And that's why there's so many counterfeits of forgiveness even in the church today. He doesn't care what counterfeit people believe in. It just has to be something that keeps you away from the entire truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So this is a, not a battle against flesh and blood. This is a very powerful, real spiritual battle that we're in right now. And God does have something special for us that we're here together tonight talking about this. So I want to interact with you, though, a little. I want to hear some of your reasons. I often do this in my seminars. Why do you think it is so difficult for human beings to either receive God's forgiveness or to forgive other people, to really do it, or to ask people to forgive them or to overcome self-condemnation? What are, and there's no, let me tell you, there's no wrong answers. I've probably heard 50 or more answers from people. They're all valid. They're all good. We're not going to look at 50. We won't have time. But... Some of them are so common, it'd be good for us to lay them out on the table here and address them a little. Yes, sir. That's very good. I'll get to yours in just a second here. That's very good. Did everyone hear that? No. That if I forgive you, somehow forgiveness is condoning what you've done to me. Somehow it's saying it's okay. Because if I stay angry at you, then you see I'm saying what you did to me is okay. But if I forgive you, then, then at least it appears that maybe I'm saying, well, you know, what you did isn't so bad. Maybe I deserved it and that's kind of okay. And it's not okay. So I'm not going to forgive you. Pride was said here. Pride is a big one. Um... You know, the unwillingness to admit that we're wrong. Which of the three paths were you thinking? All three or any one of them in particular? All three, yeah. They... In particular, the other two? Yes. Forgiving other people? I don't want to do that. I want to have power over you. I'm better than you. I don't want to put... See, when you forgive someone, you're letting them be your equal. When you're not forgiving them, you feel like you're 
superior over them because they've done wrong and you think you've only done right and therefore you can hold it against them. And surely asking someone to forgive us means admitting that we're wrong, taking responsibility for it. You're actually humbling yourself and putting yourself beneath the other person. And there's something about that that we don't like. Now, I agree with you. Pride is a big part of that. But I also want you to understand this, at least think about it. I think an awful lot of what we call pride is often just fear. This is what I mean. Human beings, all of us, have grown up in a world saturated by sin. And all sins carry with them two lies. The first lie is this. I don't think you're worth loving. Secondly, I don't think you're significant. Because if I did think you were worth loving, and I did think you were significant, I wouldn't treat you this way. But I can use you and abuse you and treat you poorly because I don't think that you're significant and you're not worth loving. Does that make sense? Because if someone really loved you, they wouldn't sin against you. They'd see value. They'd see love. They would... So this is what happens in a child's life. When we, as I remember I said last night, our coping mechanisms begin when we're children and people are sinning against us and, we, and, we, and actions speak louder than words. So parents don't say, I don't think you're worth loving. Parents don't say, I think you're insignificant. Actually, some do, and that's a big sin. But even when parents don't say it because actions speak louder than words, when parents sin against their children, when our parents sin against us, when we sin against our children, what the children are hearing is, you're not worth loving, you're not good enough, you're not significant. And that hurts like hell. And a child will always ask the question, at least subconsciously, why am I being hurt by the adults around me, especially mommy and daddy? A child will never conclude, oh, mom's sinning. A child never thinks that way. A child will think mom and dad can do no wrong. I'm talking about children, you know, under five, six, seven years old. Mom and dad can do no wrong, which means they're right and justified in hurting me which means the reason for them hurting me must be because there's something wrong with me. When that child turns 12, that thinking doesn't go away, does it? When she turns 16 and gets her driver's license, it doesn't go away. When he turns 18, it doesn't go away. When you get married, that way of thinking just doesn't go away. When you become a Christian, that thinking just doesn't evaporate and go away. There's something wrong with me. And that, that feeling of being inferior, of being less than the people around you, of being unlovable, unworthy of love, it's what hell is made of. I'm not, I'm not just being artistic when I say it hurts like hell. No, it hurts like hell because that's what hell is going to be made of. And our fear, this is, this is where fear and pride then come in, and our fear of finding out that maybe what people are saying to us is true, we cannot face. 
So instead of admitting that I was wrong, instead of admitting that I blew it, that I made a mistake, that maybe I was even selfish and actually sinned, I'm going to deny my sin, puff myself up, look more righteous than you, defend myself, use coping mechanisms, and say, it's not me, it's you. And it looks like pride. What it really is is fear, personal fear of being found out that maybe I'm really not worth loving and I'm really not significant. And that drives an awful lot of behavior through the day for most every human being. Let's go for a few more. What else? Why is it so hard to practice forgiveness? Overly forgiving, if you mean, what do you mean by over? Describe overly forgiving to me. Well, you seem to need to, you seem to need to ask forgiveness for something. And maybe you, you the lifestyle. Okay, now the way you just described that, excuse me, is not being overly forgiving, it's being overly asking people to forgive you. Is that what you mean? Well, I think both ways. Okay. No, it is on tack. People in particular, what you're describing is a self-condemning person. A self-condemning person will be very quick to blame themselves for other people's sins and then ask for forgiveness for things they're not even guilty of. Right? That person will go around and be saying, please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me because I'm no good, I'm always wrong, and they can't see other people's sin. All they see is their failure, their brokenness, their inadequacy. So they're unable to correctly identify. And tomorrow night, I'm going to talk about the first step to practicing forgiveness is, number one, you have to identify the sin, and number two, who's responsible for it. So you can identify a sin and blame the wrong person. Um, someone who is overly forgiving, that is too quick, and they haven't, by that I mean... They're not going to the cross, bringing the sin and the anger to the cross where Jesus paid for it. And they're just being nice. They're tolerating sin. Matter of fact, tolerating is one of the coping mechanisms. They, where they never get, let themselves get angry. Sometimes people say to me, oh, Steve, I never get angry when people sin against me. And I say, well, that's interesting. Then I guess you're better than God. And they go, what do you mean? I say, well, God gets angry at sin. Yeah, but I don't. You hear what you're saying? The most healthiest being in the universe gets angry at something that you don't? Who do you think is broken then? Who's not functioning properly? That's why in Ephesians, Paul says, and it's written in the, in the Greek, as a, in the imperative it's called, it's a command. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. I want to tell you my experience is the absolute best time to forgive someone is when you're feeling the most angry at them. When you are feeling the most angry, knowing that what they did was wrong, it was sinful, it was evil, it was destructive, it knifed you, and it shouldn't have happened. They have no excuse for it. No one ever has an excuse for sin. They ought to be taken out and executed. That's the best time to go, oh, and Jesus died for them. I'm talking about that tomorrow night. <laughs> but, but it starts tonight.
tonight we still have to know what forgiveness is. And I'm kind of letting the cat out of the bag here a little early by saying that. It's learning how to go to the cross and believe and feel. What does it mean that Jesus paid for sins? We have to really get deep into that. We're saying it, we're singing it, but very few Christians own it at the core of their being so that it applies to all the sins in their life. We kind of use the cross and the blood of Jesus selectively more on my sins than on your sins, more on American sins than on Arab sins, more on, depending on which side of the aisle you're on, more on Republican sins than Democrat sins, or more on Democrat sins than on Republican sins. We use the blood of Jesus Christ selectively. Real forgiveness is, it's universal. You don't pick and choose who Jesus died for. What else? Why is it so hard to receive forgiveness, forgive others, ask others to forgive us? Yes, fear in forgiving other people. We may not want to do it because we believe that this may, again, give them permission to do it again. So I need to stay angry and I need to put up boundaries and I need to not let you do this again so I can't and I won't forgive you. I'm here to tell you that biblically, real forgiveness can still include putting up boundaries. Matter of fact, I forgave someone that I later arrested that night. I wasn't a police officer. Citizens' arrest, at least in California, is a real thing. I learned that night it was real. And I arrested a drunk driver because it was the most loving thing I could do for him. So real forgiveness, real forgiveness does not mean the other person has permission to keep sinning. But if we think it does, then we won't be able to do it. We need to see how real forgiveness, you need to see how real forgiveness and real love can say to a sinner, no, stop, you can't do that anymore. Not in anger, but in love. I'll show you tomorrow night. <laughs> the how-tos are tomorrow night. The why was last night, the what is tonight, the how is tomorrow night. Pardon? If they're dead? Oh, you can't forgive them because they're dead? I have good news. Now, you weren't here last night. Last night I emphasized that God heals us when we practice forgiveness, which includes receiving forgiveness, forgiving other people. Well, can you forgive a dead person? Well, think about this. If you can only forgive living people, there's a whole lot of healing from God you're cut off from. Is God going to create that kind of system where your healing is dependent upon other people? Whether they're alive or dead, what if, what if they have to repent and ask you to forgive them? How many people are you going to forgive then? Very few, which means you're going to stay mostly broken. Hallelujah that the part of forgiveness by which God heals our soul, is unconditional and completely independent of the other person. So you can forgive unrepentant people, dead people, repeat offenders, and you can get healed. And you're going to say how? But I will explain the what it is, and it will, really the hows are, are very common sense. I mean, if you come tonight, hear what forgiveness is, I would bet, most of you could figure out most of the how-tos within a day or two or if you're talking with you, because it's just common sense stuff. But I'll help you tomorrow if you come tomorrow. A couple other reasons. Why is it so difficult? 
Did everyone hear that? Especially that last part. It's very hard to forgive when someone doesn't acknowledge, doesn't repent, doesn't take responsibility for what they've done. How about ladies, you'll love this, doesn't feel what they've done or the pain that they've caused. Um, very hard to forgive those people. And what was the last thing he said? And they keep doing it. How do you forgive that person? Well, again, I'll show you tomorrow night, but you are absolutely true. How do we forgive people who are repeat offenders? And, of course, that's what Peter was asking Jesus last night, right? How many times do I have to forgive the same person for the same sin? Is it even possible? And Peter assumed there was a limit. Jesus' answer was, there is no limit. Because my Father wants to heal you, and those sins damage you. And if there's a limit on how often you forgive, then there's a limit on how much healing you can get. God says, there's no limit on your healing. The only obstacle is your forgiveness. Yes, ma'am. It's a way... Oh, you are very brave. You get a star. Did everyone hear that? We don't forgive. We don't want to forgive other people because it's a way to hurt them a way to hurt people by not forgiving them. Because if I forgive you, I'm releasing my just reason for punishing you. Right? And if I don't forgive you, that means I can keep hurting you. And that's how we think. Now, I'm glad you said that because we're going to stop there because I'm going to explain this part a little more because it's very important in understanding what forgiveness is. Because forgiveness has everything to do with what God calls justice. Now, justice is not an American concept. It's not a human concept. It's a divine concept. I know, again, we kind of think, oh, yeah, justice. Human beings naturally know what justice is. No, we don't. God is just. He goes to great lengths especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, to describe and explain what justice is. Justice is a legal term, right? In a judicial system, there are laws. Any laws in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament? God is a lawgiver, lays out laws. And what happens when you break a law? Let's take an earthly law, a law in Vermont. You break a law, what happens? What do you incur? A, a what? A fine, some form of a penalty. Matter of fact, I don't know if you know this, but whenever legislators make a new law, they have to, in the writing of the law, also write the consequences, or really the penalty, of breaking the law. If there's no penalty for breaking the law, nobody does it. If, for example, if there was no um, penalty for driving over the speed limit ever, how fast would people drive? Everyone would do that which is right in his own eyes. A lot of people would die. Yeah, close to the way we do now. Yeah, I don't... <laughs> I agree. Laws have penalties. 
In the Old Testament, there's an interesting story about justice that people often misunderstand. And when I get to the verse, you're going to go, even non-Christians know this verse, um, but they don't understand why God said it. God, through Moses, was giving directions about penalties for different crimes because God was their civil king as well as, well as their, their heavenly father and their religious leader. He was their civil government. And so he would say what you can and can't do. And to farmers, he would say, you can't, you can't harvest the corners of your field. Leave that for the poor. You can't, if you forget a bushel of wheat out in the field, oh, and you're back in the barn and you forgot, you cannot go back and get it. It's for the poor. When you harvest your vineyard and your trees, you can only go through it once. You pick the time when most fruit is ripe. You get it. But everything that you leave behind is for the poor. If your bull gorges another man and kills him, this will be... And so God had to lay out all these laws in the Old Testament so people could understand justice and how to re rightly relate to each other. And then as the principle of guiding just penalties on an earthly level, God said this verse, an eye for a tooth for a burn for a, so you don't know the whole verse. It's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, bruise for bruise, burn for burn, fracture for fracture, life for life. You know what justice is about? Balance. In God's personal character, he is a just God. He manages a world in balance. And sin, breaking the law of love, knocks the universe out of balance, which is unacceptable and intolerable to the very character and nature of God. He must, therefore, take action to bring it back into balance. So if someone does what is wrong and you lose an eye, now you have to hear how God meant this when he said it. And this is how people usually hear it and they think God then is, because Satan's always making God look like the bad guy, right? Because he knows you can't trust people that you think are bad and it will hurt you. So he makes this very perverse, makes God look like a bad guy. Boy, God is so mean. You mean you have to gouge out the other person's eye? If they gouge out your eye, you have to cut off their hand. If they cut off your hand, you've got to smash their car. If they smash your car, is that what God's saying? No, no, no. What God is saying is, when you, in an earthly justice level, are trying to figure out what you should appropriately do to bring about justice, the most you can do is if they gouge out your eye, the most you can do is gouge out their eye. If they break your hand, the most you can do is break their hand. If they take a life, the most you can do is take their life. He was actually limiting a natural human desire to go way farther than justice. Do we have any stories in the Bible like that? Oh yeah, in the Old Testament, there's a story about the 12 sons of, of Israel. You know they had one daughter? Remember the story of that one daughter? The big story of her life is about what? Being raped by a man from town, a little town they were camped near. She was devastated because that was a sin. 
She went back and told her brothers. Two of those brothers decided to bring about their form of justice. And they went and they deceived the town. And they said to the men, we will let you marry our daughters and we will marry your daughters if you all get all your men get circumcised. And all the men said, sounds like a good deal to us. I'm not sure I would have gone for that then, but okay. And all the men got circumcised. Now, all of us guys know in particular, you're not going to be doing any jogging the next day or sit-ups or very much of anything for a few days. And while they were incapacitated, the Bible tells us, two of the sons of Jacob went over to the town and killed all the men. That's how human beings think about justice. You do a little bit to me, oh, I'm really going to make you pay. God says, that's not justice. That's not right. That's pouring your sin on top of their sin. The most you can do is balance. And you don't even have to do that because there's another place justice takes place and I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But that's why we don't want to forgive often is I don't want you to get off the hook. I want to see you suffer. I believe that God has put in the human soul the need for whoever and whatever he is. When God made the human body, he made the human body with needs. What are some of the needs of the human physical body? One at a time, just raise your hand, I'll pick you out. What, are your, what does your body need to live? Hands? Food, yes. This is not hard. This is kindergarten stuff. Water, yes, that's two. What else? Air, very good. What else? Exercise, yeah, it does need exercise. Yeah, what else? Rest, yes. We need rest. What else do we need? A bathroom. Well, we need to be protected from the things that grow in the stuff that goes down. Yes. What else do we need? Donuts. donuts. No, we don't need donuts. <laughs> a lot of people don't. You need a certain amount of space, and you need a certain amount of shelter. You need a certain amount of light. You need a certain air pressure. You need a certain temperature. Now, that love, he said, how about love? Now you've stepped into what are the soul needs? When God made the human body, he made the human body with needs. When God made the human soul, he made the human soul with needs. What are the needs of the human soul? That would be the one I'd put right at the top. Now, why does the human soul need to feel loved? Is it not because God is love, and he put in the human soul the need for who, what he is. Why do human beings all crave goodness? Is it not because God is good? Why do human beings crave significance? I said earlier, every sin says you're not worth loving, you're not significant. Why do human beings feel this great need to be significant? Is it not because God is the most significant thing in the universe and to be significant in his eyes is like drinking fresh water when you're in the desert dry? By the way, men seem to be more tuned in to the need to feel significant and women seem to be more tuned in to the need to feel loved. Both genders need both God made a little bit of difference so that we'd look at each other and go, boy, you're weird. 
why do you think like that? Because in the contrast, in the contrast, we can see something in the opposite gender that we don't see in ourselves. And in seeing it in each other, what we're really seeing is something of God. Because we are made in God's image. So we reflect who he is. And so God is love and we need to feel loved. God is good and we need goodness. God is just, watch this now, God says he's just, he is the, he is the divine definition and expression of what justice is, which means he's put in the human soul the need to see and to feel justice. Not Vermont justice, not United States of America justice, divine justice, which never makes a mistake and is always appropriate. We need that. And when someone sins against us and hurts us, not only are we damaged, not only do we feel the pain, not only is our freedom now limited, but something in our hearts rises up and says, you need to pay for what you did to me. People don't even know how to explain it. Matter of fact, anger, man's anger, is actually, I believe, a twisted form of God's justice. Let me show you how that works. You've had this happen. You're all going to groan in a second, but it's okay. You're only going to remember the pain. You're not going to feel any real pain. But you remember the last time you were sleeping at night and you, were, you woke up thirsty, you needed to go get a drink or go to the bathroom or something, and it was like 2 in the morning, so you really didn't want to wake up, so you're not going to turn on the light. You're going to kind of keep your eyes closed. You're going to try to stay asleep, and still walk across the room and get a drink of water or use the bathroom. Right? You all know that? And you know why I put that there, right? Because you're barefoot. And in the dark, with your eyes closed, you're stumbling across the room, and you catch your little toe. I know it's funny now, isn't it? But when it happened, it was not funny, because you were sure your little toe was broken off somewhere and on the floor in the dark, because it hurt so bad. It hurts. Now, psychologists tell us, and when, psych- or when worldly psychology makes observations, that's good stuff for us Christians to pay attention to. When they draw conclusions, it may not be so safe. But when they make observations, one of the observations psychology has made is that this thing we call anger is what they call a secondary emotion. It always follows after another emotion. Anger always follows after, or should always follow, after pain. So you you stub your toe on the chair at night. You feel the pain. People who have not learned to suppress their anger and who aren't exercising a lot of self-control at that moment, what human beings naturally feel after they feel the pain is what? (laughs) Okay, now you're a little ahead of me here. He said that chair's going to pay. Because we're feeling what emotion? Anger. And so, now here's a question. Now, Now, watch this. How you answer this question would tell me something about what your coping mechanism is. Because different people are going to have different answers to this question. When you stub your toe on a chair at night, who or what are you angry at? Now, who said the chair's going to pay? Was that you, JC? 
So J.C. is going to be angry at the chair. Why? Because human beings will always be angry at the person or thing they believe is responsible for their pain. So if I believe the chair is responsible for my pain, I turn around and look at the chair and then do what? Kick the chair with the other foot. Because I have to make the chair suffer. I have to make it pay. The world is out of balance. I don't like this. Somebody has to pay. All this pain, somebody has to pay. So we kick the chair and we hurt our other foot. And it makes no sense because the chair did not jump out to attack us. What's the other? Who's the other thing or person you could be angry at? Yourself. I'm such a stupid idiot. Why didn't I turn on the light? I'm no. And then we start thinking these bad thoughts. I'm no good. I'm bad. My mom said this, and my dad said I would never amount to anything. I'm such a terror. Now, now, human beings, listen, this is very important, will always be angry at the person or thing they perceive. The perception could be incorrect. You're angry at God because you think he's responsible for your pain. He's not responsible for your pain. Find out who or what is really responsible for your pain. Your anger towards God will disappear and your anger will show up somewhere else. Because you will always be angry at the person or thing or world system that you believe to be responsible for your pain. And if you believe you are responsible for your pain, who are you going to be angry at? And since anger is the desire to punish that person, who are you now going to punish? Yourself. I had one man in a seminar shout out when I said, who are you angry at after you stub your toe? He said, my wife. (laughs) And everybody laughed like you did. And I thought, well, okay, that's interesting. And I said, okay, sir, why are you angry at your wife? And he still confirmed the principle because he blurted out, because my wife moved the chair. She's responsible for it not being in the right place, which is why I stubbed my toe. Anger, anger, man's anger, not God's anger. Our anger is a twisted form of our heart's cry for justice. And there's two forms of anger. One is active, one is passive. Anger starts always, can I use you, Lonnie? No, just stay there. I'm just warning you ahead of time. See, I'm going to get a running start here. No. I'm not going to jump on you. I'm not going to touch you. In early seminars, I would pick a, you know, someone in the front, often a woman, and one time the woman broke down and cried. I said, okay, only men from now on, okay. Okay, you're, you're going to be okay, because I, lang- I want people to see the body language. This is what we, f- when we are feeling angry at someone or something, anger starts with this. With it, it's an, uh, anger is an emotional experience of a thought, and the thought is this. You hurt me, and I need to see you suffer. Yes, she's moving out of the way. So I did good body language there. Is that good body language? He didn't flinch. That's why I warned him. I'm not going to touch you. It's going to be okay. And a lot of you, if you know, I'm a big guy. If I move towards you that way with, with that face, with a fit, you would be starting to, okay, stop. Because you know I'm going to do something. 
But psychologists have noted that human beings don't always act out our anger. There's what's called active anger and passive anger. Pass active anger actually is this. You hurt me, I need to see you suffer, and I am willing to bring it about, and then wham, I let him have it. Now what's the simple word that describe, in English that describes getting back at the person who hurt you? Revenge. Which the Bible says, never take your own revenge. In civilized countries and in the church, you can't do revenge. Matter of fact, a lot of Christians have been taught it's even a sin to be angry. That all sin. Sometimes people come to me at the end of a seminar and said, Steve, the most important thing you told me is you gave me permission to be angry. And I said, I didn't give you permission. I told you God's command was for you to be angry. It's way beyond permission. When people sin against you, you ought to be angry at them because God is angry at them. In active anger, though, I can't, I, you know, I'm a pastor. You hurt me in that board meeting last week, and man, I'm going to let you have it. I'm going to gossip about you. I'm going to key your car. I'm going to burn your house. You, know, you can't do that in a civilized country. You'll go to jail. You'll get fired. You'll end up divorced. You're, you lose your job. I mean, so you can't, we just can't, and in the church, you really can't do revenge. So we practice passive anger. Now, I call passive anger Christian anger. Because Christians are way more guilty of passive anger than non-Christians are. Passive anger looks and sounds like this. You hurt me. I need to see you suffer. But I can't cause your suffering. Notice how I'm now backing up from him. I can't cause your suffering because if I cause your suffering, people are going to see it and I'm going to look bad and it's going to cost me and I don't want to pay that price. However, I still need to see you suffer. So I'm going to wait. And I'm going to keep watching. Why am I watching? Because I still need, my God-given need is still in full force. I need to see you. I need justice, and I'm not seeing it. So I'm going to wait, and I'm going to watch, and I'm going to hope, and I might even pray. The prayer would sound something like this. Almighty, holy, righteous, and just God, you know all things, and you know the terrible thing that Lonnie did to me. And he ought to pay. And I know you are righteous and just. So Lord, let him have it. Now, none of us actually pray. Well, actually, I have heard some people have actually prayed prayers like that. Sometimes even church leaders have used that almost as a threat in churches. Because that's, I need to see you suffer. Now, this is where it gets even uglier. Funny and uglier. But you're, in being funny, you're actually going to condemn yourselves. You're going to be a witness against yourself. Because I'm going to start a sentence and you're going to finish it. Which means you know the answer. <laughs> Passive anger looks and sounds like this again. You hurt me. I need to see you suffer. But I can't cause your suffering. So I am going to wait. I'm going to watch. I'm going to hope. And when I see you suffering for any reason at all, your wife dies. Your unwed child, daughter gets pregnant. You lose your job. You get cancer. 
you're in a car accident. On Sunday morning, I'm going to come up to you and say, Lonnie, I'm so sorry. I'll be praying for you. And then I'll walk away, and I'm going to be thinking this. He's finally getting is what he deserves. He's finally getting what he deserves. Thank you, Lord. Is that hypocrisy or what? And sometimes we call that, it's an illness, yeah. Sometimes we call that forgiveness. Because I didn't cause it. I was being loving. I was being kind. I was being a hypocrite is what I was being. Why Jesus said to Peter, you have to forgive from your heart, at the core of your being. How do you know when you've really forgiven someone when your anger is gone? No, you know when you've really forgiven someone when you actually love your enemy and want to be a personal blessing in their life. Try to do that without Jesus Christ. It's not possible. We have to know what forgiveness is so that our heart's cry for justice can be satisfied. And it happens at the cross of Jesus Christ so that I can look at anyone who sins against me and says, I don't need to see you suffer. Matter of fact, I can love you. And it happens by knowing the truth. And Jesus said this, if you know the truth, the truth will. But you have to know it personally, intimately, experientially. I'm going to try and help you do that a little tonight. One of the biggest reasons why people don't practice forgiveness well, and now if you would pass out one of these, and if you could pass out this paper to everyone here, is that we don't really understand very well what biblical forgiveness, what real forgiveness is, even in the church. What I'm about to share with you is something that I have not found in any of the 60-plus books I have on forgiveness. I'm not saying I'm better than other people. I usually did. I was just desperate. I was trying to forgive my wife and get free of the ang- growing anger that I was having towards her for just little sins. Little sin- I couldn't forgive my wife of little sins. But it, and I was a pastor memorizing whole books of the Bible, um, and I couldn't forgive my wife. And I asked, said to God, I don't know what forgiveness is. I can't do it. I can't play this game anymore. My problems are getting worse. And I didn't even know. I just seen the tip of the iceberg of my problems. And I need to know what forgiveness is. So God, can we start over, please? And I'm going to go to your word, and I'm going to try to find out, as if I knew nothing about Christianity, what forgiveness is. And so as I was reading the Bible, and as I was reciting a whole lot of Scripture, I came to two verses that really caught me by surprise, and they were the beginning that unlocked a different understanding. One verse is Luke 17.3. Luke 17.3. Simple verse. Jesus is speaking, and he's talking about forgiving other people. And he says it this way. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Okay, let's look at that verse. Someone sinned against you. We need to forgive the person so God can heal us. Jesus is teaching our Lord, and he says, if your brother sins against you, there's something you need to do. What did he say you need to do? 
Go and rebuke him. Now, you do have to realize that rebuke in Jesus' language and his heart is different from rebuke in the world. Rebuke in the world is, you bad, wicked sinner, I'm, you know, I've got to correct you and you're wrong and let me point out what you're doing wrong. That's not biblical rebuking. Rebuking in the Bible is always done in a spirit of love for the benefit of the person who sinned. So it might look and sound a lot more like this. Sean, I'm not sure if you understand that when you said what you said to me last week that you realized how much that hurt me. And I, I don't think you want to hurt me, but do you even realize what you did and how wrong it was? You know, that's loving and rebuke. That, or rebuking in love. That's giving him the benefit of the doubt. That's trying to find out if he even knows what he's done, if he cares about what he's done, if he, if he wants to repent right away. So, and Jesus says, if you go and rebuke someone, and if he, what? Repents. And repent means what? To turn away or to turn around. So if someone is sinning against you, and they repent, what they're going to be saying is, oh, I, I didn't realize that, or maybe I did realize I'm, I, I shouldn't be doing that. I don't want to do that to you. I will work really hard never to do that again. That's, those are the words of a repentant person. Jesus says, if they repent, what do you then do? Forgive them. Okay, pretty good. Matter of fact, most of us like this verse, because who was it over here? They don't, you said that I don't want to forgive someone who doesn't take responsibility, doesn't ask for forgiveness, still doing it. Yeah, it's hard to forgive. And you would like this verse. Jesus is saying you cannot forgive that person if they don't repent, which makes forgiveness what? Conditional or unconditional according to that verse? It's conditional. Forgiveness happens only if the guilty person what? Repents. No repentance, no forgiveness. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, God says, then, if they do this condition, then I will hear their prayers, I will forgive their sins, and I'll heal their land. Oh, good, okay. Forgiveness is conditional. Until you get to Mark 11.25. Mark 11:25, Jesus is speaking again. He's also talking about forgiving other people. And he says this. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. Okay, let's look at that verse. When you stand praying, so who are you with? The person who hurt you? No. You're with God in prayer. And there you remember someone hurt you. You're angry at someone. Who, if you have anything against anyone, who does the word anyone include? Everyone. Who does that word exclude? No one, which means who is unforgivable? Nobody is unforgivable. Now, right away, like I said last night, that's very challenging to us because none of us naturally want to forgive, especially when we don't know what it is because we all draw a line and say there are certain people that are unforgivable. You might be thinking of some now. People who have hurt you very deeply who keep doing it and don't care that they're doing it. 
Jesus says, when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive anything. What sins does anything include? What does it exclude? What about Adolf Hitler? That's how we all naturally think, but that's not what Jesus is saying, is it? See, forgiveness is not human, is it? Whatever it is, it is God's solution to a problem he calls sin. It's way outside of humanity. It's divine. It's miraculous. If you have anything against anyone, forgive them. And it sounds like the way Jesus is talking about Forgive them right here, right now. It shouldn't take much time. When you stand praying, go ahead and forgive them. When? Right here. When? Right now? Where? Right here. How long will it take? Uh, shouldn't take any time at all. You done yet? That's how Jesus is talking. Every book I have on forgiving other people says forgiving other people will take months or years. The worse the sin, the longer it will take. And I go, that's not what the Bible's teaching. Paul says, again, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Paul knew how to forgive people and get rid of his anger in less than a day. How does, what did he know that we don't know that allowed him to do that? Why would he even want to do that? So in that verse... Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. Is that verse about forgiveness conditional or unconditional? It is completely unconditional. Matter of fact, it cannot be stated more unconditionally. So let me ask you a Bible question. Is biblical forgiveness conditional or unconditional, according to Jesus? Is it conditional or unconditional? When I asked God this for about two months in prayer, because I kept looking at these verses, and I said, Lord, I don't understand, because I don't know anything that's both conditional and unconditional at the same time. These are going in opposite directions. It's either unconditional based on nothing, or it's conditional based on something, and it looks like it's based on repentance. And it's not just these two verses, because I started looking at a whole bunch of other verses, and almost every verse in the Bible, Old and New Testament, was either conditional, forgiveness was either described as being conditional, or unconditional. And so I go, gee, no wonder we don't know what forgiveness is and what's going on. Because I can't understand this. I'm a pastor. I've memorized most of the books of the Bible. I... Lord, which is it, conditional or unconditional? Give me an answer. And you know what he kept saying to me? Yes. He didn't even say both. He kept saying yes. Like I had discovered something, and I wanted to say, I don't know what I'm talking about. How can it be conditional and unconditional at the same time? And he let me keep wrestling with it until I thought, is there any way to explain this? And it dawned on me one day. I just stumbled into it by, by the Holy Spirit's lead. It wasn't me. I thought, I wonder if when God talks about forgiving sins, sins have two sides. And maybe forgiving one side of sin looks different than forgiving the other side of sin. Maybe sin is like a coin, and every coin has two sides. How many coins have two sides? 
everyone does, but just one coin. Think of the coin as the coin of sin. But every sin, like a coin, has two sides. Well, what might be those two sides? Well, as I looked at the Bible, I started to realize God talked about sin as if it were a crime, a breaking of the law that has a penalty. Every sin is a crime. It is breaking God's law of love. What are the two greatest laws? Love God and love your neighbor. So whenever a human being is not loving God and not loving their neighbor as themselves, they're committing a sin. It's a crime against God. And every crime has a penalty, a legal penalty. But God also describes sin as if it were something really stupid. Like, I don't know, putting your hand on a hot stove. What happens when you put your hand on a hot stove? You get burned. Is there a law against putting your hand on a hot stove? No. But if you put your hand on the hot stove, you're going to get burned. Why? It's the nature of the universe that the body is made in a certain way with certain molecules with certain design and intricacies and heat responds in a certain way. You put your hand on a hot stove that's too hot for too long, you're just going to suffer so much damage. Oh, sins damage the human soul. They destroy relations. Oh, sins can only steal, kill, and destroy. Sins are just plain destructive. And it doesn't matter who you are or how old you are. Because if I put my hand at 57 on a hot stove, I get burned. And if my three-year-old granddaughter puts her hand on the hot stove, guess what happens? She gets burned. And if I do it deliberately, I get burned. And if I do it accidentally, I get burned. If I do it once, I get burned. And if I do it every day for the next 10 years, I get burned. If someone grabs my hand and forces it on the hot stove, I still get burned. Do I say after I get burned by the hot stove, well, this means God doesn't love me? No, that would be stupid to say that. It would also be stupid to say God is punishing me because I'm getting burned by the stove. God would just say, what are you doing? Matter of fact, listen to how God said it to Abraham. The first lesson that's recorded in the Bible that God, it's not the first, maybe the first lesson, but it's at least the first lesson recorded where God is teaching humanity. God says to Adam before Eve, from any tree of this garden you may eat freely. However, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden you shall not eat of it, for the day you eat of it you shall surely die. What, what does sin do? Steal, kill, destroy. For the wages of sin is? By the way, the wage is not a penalty. I was taught that verse, Romans 6.23, was the wages of sin is death, and Jesus died to save you from that. No, no, no. He didn't die to save you from that. That's impossible. He died to save you from the penalty of sin. Nobody can die to pay for the consequences of sin. You put your hand on a hot stove, you will get burned. How often is that truth real? Every single time. The early church struggled with the real meaning of forgiveness too because we know this because at one point in Galatians, Paul had to say to the Christians there, listen to how he starts these words, do not be 
deceived, which means it's probably pretty easy for even Christians to be deceived about this truth. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You know the rest of the verse? Whatever seed you put into the ground, that's what you're going to eat from someday. So you don't have to be a biologist, but let's run the little experiment. You help me out. Help me out with the answer here. When you plant tomato seeds, what are you going to be eating someday, according to the Bible? Tomatoes. You plant wheat seeds, what are you going to eat someday? Wheat. You plant apple seeds, what are you going to be eating someday? It's the law of the universe. It is unbreakable, unbendable, immutable. Anyone who puts a wheat seed in the ground and expects an apple tree is an idiot. Because it just ain't going to happen. It doesn't work that way. Now watch this. You put thistle seeds in the ground, what are you going to be eating someday? I'm glad you said thistles, because a lot of Christians in seminars say nothing. Say That's not what the Bible teaches. You put thistles in the ground, do you know what you have to eat someday? You have to eat thistles. But I don't want to eat thistles. Then God says, well, stop planting thistle seeds. As long as you plant thistle seeds, you're going to have to eat them. As long as you put your hand on the hot stove, you will get burned. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. This is the universe. Everything you do has consequences. Everything you do that is good has good consequences. Everything you do that is bad, that is a sin, has negative consequences. And God calls those negative consequences death. And the wages of sin is death. A wage is not the penalty for doing something. A wage is the proper compensation for having done something. So if you work for, what's the big grocery store around here? What is it called? Anifers. You work for Anifers. Where do you get your paycheck from? You work for Dartmouth College. Where do you get your paycheck from? You work for the county. Where do you get your paycheck from? You work for sin. Where do you get your paycheck from? Sin. Now, some people say the devil. I say, no, the devil even sins and gets his paycheck from sin. The devil doesn't pay us. Sin is paying us. The wages of sin is, because sin can only do three things, steal, kill, destroy. So look at this coin. I want you to think about and consider the possibility that when God talks about sin, sin actually has two very distinct separate sides. One side is a penalty, because every sin is a crime against God. The other problem, or the other side of sin, are consequences, because every sin is a stupid act. And the Bible says, brace yourself, both sides will kill you. Because if you commit a sin and you incur the penalty, the penalty for sin is death, the Bible teaches, but it's a very specific kind of death. It is physical execution by God himself. God is the lawgiver, God is the judge, and God also has to be the executioner because no one can bring about divine justice in this universe except God himself. Romans can't bring about divine justice. The United States of America cannot bring about, the UN cannot bring about divine justice. Nobody brings about divine justice, just God. God says, you sin, 
in any way, shape, or form, it means for me to balance the universe, I have to take you out and impose the holy and just and righteous penalty. I have to execute you. No matter how much I love you, I have to execute you. Somebody has to pay the penalty. But on the other side of sin, the consequent side of sin, you put your hand on a stove, hot stove, you get burned. Any sin you commit, you're destroying your soul, your body, your spiritual life, your relationships, the planet. There's nothing good that comes from sin. You're going to be paid back. Not because God is punishing you. It's the nature of sin. Sin is killing you. So before Jesus Christ on the cross, it was as if every human being was on death row awaiting execution because we're all guilty of sin. But every human being was also dying of sin sickness, of the disease of sin. Sin was also... Let me give you a little picture we can maybe liken to help you understand this. Let's imagine a, a man who wants to build a bomb and kill as many people as he can. And I live near Lawrence Livermore Lab. Maybe you've heard about that. They do a lot. They used to do a lot of nuclear development. And, and so they, they always say, oh, no, there's, there's no radioactive material here. <laughs> right. And if I told you there was, I'd have to kill you. So there's radioactive material there, plutonium, stuff you can make atomic bombs for it. Let's, let's imagine this man knows this. He wants to build an atomic bomb, but you cannot get plutonium from Costco or Home Depot or anywhere else. You've got to go to one of these facilities. And the government, you, mark my words, they know where all this stuff is, and they guard it. I had one of the Lawrence Livermore guys in my lab, and I told this story, and he came up afterwards. He said, Steve, Steve, it's impossible to steal plutonium. Oh, wait, there's no plutonium there. No, it's impossible to steal plutonium from the lab. I say, it's just a story. Yeah, but it's a bad story because it's impossible. He went on for like five minutes telling. I said, I know it's impossible, but it's just a story. So the man breaks in and does the impossible and steals some plutonium to make a bomb. And he goes online to the Internet to figure out how to do it because it's on the Internet. And he, he's now um, running for his life, and the FBI are after him, and the TSA, and the CIA and everybody's after him. He's running for about two weeks. They catch him and they imprison him and they turn the plutonium. You following me? So, according to the laws of the United States of America, it is illegal to steal plutonium. Right? <coughs> of any shape or form. It's even illegal to break into the lab. So he has broken a law. And to make this story fit the biblical story, let's also say this. The penalty for his crime is to be executed by the United States of America. So he's, he's he goes to trial. He's found out that he's guilty. He's tried. He's condemned. And the judge has to sentence him to death because he broke the law. The penalty for his crime is he's going to have to die. So they put him on death row at San Quentin awaiting death. Actually, it wouldn't be San Quentin. It would be a federal prison. I don't know what federal prison would be out there. But So he, now he's awaiting execution. He's going to be executed in two months. To make the story simple, no appeals. It's just going to happen in two months. However, while he's there, as soon as he gets there, he starts showing physical signs of being very ill. Something is wrong. 
And the doctors examine him and they determine, you have radiation sickness. Because being around plutonium is not a smart thing. It's worse than putting your hand on a hot stove because radioactivity is highly toxic and lethal. It will kill you. And the doctors have said, man, you have been so overexposed. I don't think doctors say man, but okay, man, you have been so overexposed, you're going to be dead in two months. You with me? Is his radiation sickness a part of the penalty of what he did? No. It's a consequence. It's one of the many consequences. We could sit for half an hour and talk about what other, imagine, what other consequences might he face? Lose his wife, lose his job, lose public reputation, lose all his money. I mean, there's all kinds of negative consequences for that one. Every one sin has many negative consequences, physical consequences, spiritual consequences, relational consequences, consequences for your soul, consequences for the earth, consequences in the spiritual world. There are, there are lots of consequences. This word, we're just focusing on the physical consequences. He has radiation sickness. And it's not a penalty for his crime. It's a consequence of doing something stupid. Now, follow me on this. Let's imagine that the President of the United States, someone that you respect and admire very much, so you pick the man or woman, it doesn't matter, doesn't have to be the current one, knows about this story, and the President has authority by the laws of the Constitution to pardon this man of his crime, which means he's going to sign a legal document, and that document's going to go to the prison, and the prison is going to have to let him go. Of course, all of us right away go, wait, 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 that's not right, that's wrong, because our hearts are crying out for justice. A pardon, matter of fact, a pardon is very similar to real forgiveness, but even though the word pardon will appear in our English Bibles, a pardon and forgiveness are not the same thing, because a pardon has no justice. It is releasing a guilty person and nobody pays the penalty. But a governor can do that. A president can do that. So he signs it, the person is released, and he goes free. Let me ask you, how long does he have to live? Two months. And in two months, he's going to die. Why? As a consequence of his sin. Government's not going to kill him. They pardoned him. By the way, if it's real forgiveness, you know what the president would have to do? He'd sign the release form, and then he would take the prisoner's place and be executed in the place of the person he set free. Now we're talking about biblical forgiveness. I don't know of any presidents or governors who have even ventured that far. I'll let you go, but there'll be no justice. And when people think that there is no justice in forgiveness, then we don't want to do it. Because our hearts are crying out for justice. We have got to see someone pay the penalty. What we want is to see the guilty, per well, the guilty person, everyone other than ourselves. We want the other guilty people to pay. We don't want to have to pay it ourselves. That's why we're so willing to receive our own forgiveness, but unwilling to forgive other people. We like that Jesus died for us. Let's really think about what does it mean that Jesus died for the other people. Well, let's put this man back on death row. He's still got two months. He's going to be executed by the government because the president hasn't pardoned him. 
But doctors have come up with a possible cure for radiation sickness because there isn't any cure, and they're looking for human test subjects, and he says, sure, why not? And they give him this one potentially effective pill. He takes it, and it cures him of radiation sickness. He's, he's got a clean bill of health in two days. How long does he have to live? Two months. And in two months, why is he going to die? The government's going to execute him. Every human being is that person. We've all sinned and committed crimes for which we must die. Not because God's mean or cruel. Not because He doesn't love us. We have to die because He is holy, just, and righteous. And justice means the universe has to be brought into balance. But we're also pretty stupid. We've also been putting, living with our hand on the stove and doing a tongue on frozen steel poles and, and taking drugs and smoking and sleeping around and doing all kinds of stupid, dumb things that God says, don't do that, that'll kill you, don't do that, that will kill you, don't do that, that will kill you. We go, oh yeah, I got this, I can take care of this, I can do this, I'm a big boy. I can. God says, you have no idea what you're dealing with. Which is why Jesus taught this to the Jewish people when he came along. And you know this verse too. Jesus hypothetically said, suppose your whole body was free of sin, perfectly healthy. One day you woke up and you found sin in your right hand. You all know, even non-Christians know what Jesus said. Jesus said you have one. Sin is so destructive, so invasive. You have one life-saving course of action to take. And what is it? Cut your hand off immediately, and it doesn't stop there. You've got to read all the verses, all the words, and throw it away from you. You don't even want this contaminated, cut-off hand near you because apparently sin can kind of jump the space. And he said, if sin you found in your sinless body, you found sin in your eye, you have one life-saving course of action. Gouge your eye out and throw it away. Because sin is like gangrene. Gangrene is the medical condition where a part of your body has actually, the tissue has died and is now decaying and rotting while it's connected to the rest of your body. And the living tissue will never heal and resurrect the dead tissue. The dead tissue will decompose and decay like rotting hamburger in the sun and it will produce toxins which because it's connected to your living body will kill the cells next to the dead cells and so the death just spreads up the hand gets into the veins you'll be dead in a matter of days unless the only solution for for uh, gangrene is amputation see Jesus was saying you people still aren't kidding it Sin is that destructive, and you're playing with it. And then when the gospel of Jesus and forgiveness that Jesus died for the penalty of your sins was preached, a lot of people, like Christians today, go, well, that means, because God loves me and Jesus died for me and I'm born again and I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, that means I can sin and nothing bad will happen to me. And to those people, said, Paul says by the Spirit, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You put your hand on a hot stove, you will get burned. It has nothing to do with how much God loves you or doesn't love you, because he does love you. And it has nothing to do with the penalty for sin or the cross of Jesus Christ. 
It has to do with the nature of sin, because sin can only steal, kill, destroy. Sin should scare the hell out of you, literally. Even though you know Jesus died for the penalty. And see, these two sides of sin then lead to, well, if God says sin has these two different sides, and he says he's forgiving sin, maybe forgiving the penalty is different from forgiving consequences. And sure enough, it looks like that's the way it is. Because when God talks about forgiving the penalty, the reason why he forgives the penalty, the single one reason why God forgives the penalty of sin is because Jesus Christ has already suffered and died and paid the penalty for who? For you and everyone else. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Or John says in 2 John 2, 2, that Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the church. No, it doesn't say that. For the, for the repentant believers in Jesus. No, it doesn't say that. He is the atoning sacrifice for the whole world. Now, that, put your seatbelt on, because this means it's going to shake up your theology, which means if those verses are true, and if we understand them the way they're sounding... Jesus has died for everyone, paid for everyone's sins, and God therefore has forgiven who? Everyone. I know some of you are quickly thinking, is that guy going to say now God's everyone's saved? No, because just as salvation has, or sin has two sides and forgiveness has two sides, guess what else has two sides? Salvation does. God has saved every human being from the penalty of sin. He's saying, I have good news. I am not going to execute any of you. I love all of you, and because God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son on a cross to die and pay the penalty for everyone. So I have already paid for all of your sins. You didn't even ask me to do it. It wasn't your idea. It was my idea, God says. I did it without you thinking about it, without you asking for it. I have done it without you even knowing about it. Your sins were paid for before you committed them, before you were born. Boy, that's good news. God says, I won't execute you. And we go, hallelujah, that's great. And then he says, now wait, 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 wait. However, sin has two sides. I'm not going to execute you. Sin's still killing you. Even if I don't kill you, for justice sake, your sins will kill you. They will kill you physically, mentally, morally, spiritually. They will send you to hell forever or to the lake of fire. See, going to the lake of fire is not the penalty for sin. It's a consequence of sin. It's a consequence of never believing in Jesus, never turning away from sin, and wanting to... Con if you want, see, what God is saying to humanity is, I'm not going to execute you. However, if you want to continue to sin, there's nothing I can do to stop you. And you're going to be suffering that burnt hand for the rest of eternity. However like me to save you from the disease of sin and from the consequences of sin. If you would like to stop sinning, 
which means repent. There's that word. Then I will come into your life in the name of my Son, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, and I will start a transforming work in your life where you start to sin less and less and love God and love other people more and more to the extent that when I'm done with you, you will look just like who? Jesus. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, these He also predestined to become conformed to the image of Jesus. How often does Jesus put His hand on the hot stove? Never. How often does Jesus sin? Never. See, salvation includes being saved from the penalty of sin through the cross of Jesus Christ. But it has to include and isn't complete until it means being saved from the consequences of sin and our practice of sin, which is why forgiveness and salvation are often connected to the word repent. Repent means, do you want to stop sinning? Well, I don't want to stop sinning. Then God says, I can't help. Oh, you do want to stop sinning? Oh, but you're going to try real hard to do it on your own? Well, I still can't help you. Oh, you know you're sinning and you don't want to sin and you realize that my son Jesus living inside of you is the only way to save you from that? Now I can help you. And we surrender our lives to God and say, take me and make me something I'm not because I'm not like Jesus. I'm a sinner. Make me a saint. Make me like Jesus. So what I'm suggesting to you is every human, this is different, every human being who has or will ever live has already been forgiven of the penalty of sin. God's not going to execute that. That does not mean everyone's going to heaven. It does not mean everyone's saved because the only people who are saved and get to live with God are the people who repent, turn away from sin, and believe in Jesus as the only one who can save them from sin. Amen? Two sides of sin, two sides of forgiveness, sides of salvation. Does that make sense? Now on your paper, I've given you a lot of Bible verses to look at. We don't have time to look at those. We never do. So I'm giving you a Bible study to go home, to look at, get your Bible out, look at these verses. I tried to put as many as I could. You could go to my website. There's three and a half pages. And in the, if you buy uh, the book that I'll offer you tomorrow... There's three and a half pages from Genesis to Revelation of the verses in the Bible on forgiveness. And it will help you see that forgiveness is either forgiveness of the penalty or forgiveness of the consequences. 95% of the verses, it's one side or the other. Only a few verses are talking about forgiveness in a general way. Which means every time you read the Bible, every time you see the word forgive or forgiveness or forgiven, you need to stop and ask this question. Is this word talking about the forgiveness of consequences or forgiveness of the penalty? Because they're not the same thing. Because one side is unconditional because Jesus paid for it once for all. The other side of forgiveness of consequences is conditional. God can only forgive repentant people. Which means when we forgive other people, watch how this works, because God says, this is what forgiveness is, and this is how I forgive you. Oh, good, now we can receive forgiveness. And then he says, now go and forgive each other just in the same way that I've forgiven you. 
which means if you sin against me, you're actually doing two things. You're incurring a penalty and setting in motion negative consequences that we're both experiencing. And I don't like it because you've hurt me, you've knifed me, and I want to see justice, and I want to see you suffer. Oh, what? wait, wait, I don't need to see you suffer because if I'm a Christian and if I know Jesus Christ has died not just for me, if I really believe Jesus died for you, and my heart's cry for justice is satisfied at the cross of Christ. I know if I believe... See, you receive forgiveness by believing Jesus died for you. You forgive other people by believing Jesus died for them. Does that make sense? Which is why forgiveness is not even a choice. Because if I really believe that Jesus died for you all, to not forgive you... What am I saying to God? That His Son's blood isn't good enough to pay for your sins. Can you say that to God? I bet you can't. I bet you can't say Jesus' blood is not good enough. And all of a sudden, forgiveness isn't a choice. It's a discovery. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for, you. Jesus died for Hitler. What does it mean if Jesus died? What if Jesus died for Osama bin Laden? What if Jesus died for all the soldiers of ISIS? If you have anything against who? Anyone. Forgive them right here, right now, that fast. Lord, how do I do that? By believing Jesus died for them too. But in America, we have a theology where Jesus died for who? Well, even before Americans, it is true. Who did Jesus die for? In our personal theology, who did Jesus die for? It's just me. Jesus died for me. And he died for the people I like. But he didn't die for the pedophile. He didn't die for the mass murderer. And he didn't die for the, uh, you know, you name it. We start thinking of, where we don't like it. We say, I don't want Jesus dying for you. And what we're saying to God when we say that is, I don't think your justice at the cross of Jesus Christ and his suffering and your suffering, Father, is good enough to pay for that sin. I'm not going there. (laughs) And you see why not forgiving people in the New Testament is such a big sin in itself? Because when we're not forgiving people, we're insulting God at the cross of Christ. When we forgive people at the cross, we're actually honoring him and worshiping him. Saying, not my will, your will. You paid for the sin. I feel it, I see it, I accept it, I rejoice in it, I live in it. Yeah, I can forgive any human being of any and every sin because I know that Jesus Christ has died for them all. Even if they are going to die and go to hell and then the lake of fire. They may not know it, they don't want to repent, but I know it. Because I know the truth. The truth sets me free. That's where forgiveness begins. That's why Jesus said that. But he also said this, and I'll wrap it up here. When your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him. And if he repents, then you forgive him. Not of the penalty. You forgive him of the consequences. 
So if you're sinning against me and hurting me, then I'm going to back off. I'm going to put up boundaries. I'm going to make you feel the consequences you need to feel. But if you repent, then that changes everything. Now I can start to forgive those consequences. I can change them and say, see how I'm walking towards you now? If you, don't, if you really, truly, in your heart, don't want to sin and do this anymore, you're not dangerous. You're now safer. I can get closer to you. I, don't, I can drop the barriers. I can change the consequences. I can heal your land. If she doesn't repent, I forgive her. I still forgive. Tomorrow I'm going to tell you, you always do the cross work first. You forgive a person at the cross so you're free of your anger. And then you ask God, how do I love this person? How do I give this person the best opportunity to repent? I'm going to come to her in some way. And if she doesn't want to repent, then what the Bible teaches is, in love, you say, well, then I am going to back up from this relationship. Jesus said this in Matthew 18. When your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him. Almost sounds like Luke 17.3, but this is Matthew 18. And Jesus says, and if he repents, if, conditional, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't repent, go and tell it to two or three other people. Make the consequences more severe. You do it in private first, then you do it in a small group. Say, okay, you're not responding in a good, healthy, loving way. I'm going to bring some more people. And together, we are lovingly going to confront you. And if you don't repent, Jesus says, well, we're going to turn up the stove, make it hotter. We're going to tell it to the whole church. And the whole church is going to come together and say, honey, we love you. But do you realize that you're doing this and it's hurting not just this person, but all of us? And it's insulting to Jesus. And you really want to keep, and if you say, yeah, I do want to keep, I don't want to change. I think I'm in the right and you're all wrong. You know what Jesus then says? Treat him as a tax collector and a Gentile. Doesn't say shoot him in the head. Because a Jewish person would not have a relationship with a tax collector or a Gentile. So real forgiveness includes boundaries, consequence. That's why I said, I forgave a drunk driver because he threatened my life and the life of my children and wife. And without anger, I arrested him and sent him to jail. And I was fully prepared to testify against him in a court of law, not in anger. But it was the only way to spank a grown man who was doing the wrong thing and to try to give him the best opportunity to go, man, I don't want to drive drunk anymore. I lost my license. I spent nights in jail, and this is not a good idea. And sometimes real love has to be tough and say, no, you can't keep doing this. You're destroying yourself, our relationship, the people around you, and whatever freedom God gives me to do, that's appropriate. I'm going to get in your way. Sometimes that means turning the other cheek, which means if you're going to sin again, I'll let you do it, but you're going to have to run right over me and through me and hurt me. Now, most of us Christians aren't ready to do that, are we? Usually because we haven't forgiven the person first and we're still angry. We have to be free of our anger first at the cross of Christ. Then we learn how to love our enemies even if they're our spouse or our children or our parents, giving them the best opportunity to repent. So here's where we're going to end. Look at your paper. I want you to look at the definitions at the bottom of the back page. We give two names to these two sides of forgiveness. The first side is personal forgiveness. 
Personal forgiveness is the side of forgiveness where God is forgiving the penalty of sin at the cross of Christ or where we are forgiving the penalty of someone's sin at the cross of Christ. Let's read it out loud together, starting with the words personal forgiveness. Personal forgiveness, releasing a person from having to pay the penalty for their own sins in light of the fact that Jesus Christ has already paid for their sins in full through His physical execution. When you live in the truth of the cross, you're doing this. But relational forgiveness has to do with the consequences and how it affects the relationship. What kind of relationship can I have with a person who still wants to sin against me? Or maybe they want to stop. So the definition for relational forgiveness is this. And let's read this one together. Relational forgiveness, giving a person who has sinned the best opportunity to repent so that the negative consequences can be changed and loving relationships established. Ultimately, the goal of forgiveness, God's forgiveness, is to restore people and to restore loving relationships. It's all about love in the end. How do you love the pe- How does God love sinners? First, He dies for them, pays the penalty, and then He gives us opportunity to repent. For God is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And then He says, Now forgive each other the same way. Forgive the people who sin against you at the cross of Christ. And then give them the best opportunity to repent and see what they do with it. And if they repent, hallelujah. If they don't repent, in pain and sorrow like God, you'll have to back up from them. And the relationship may never be saved because they don't want to change. Amen? Tomorrow, we'll put some handles and steps on how to do in particular personal forgiveness so that you could start doing it right away. Amen? You're welcome.